Hello, and welcome to the Tip of the Iceberg podcast. I'm Amy Souter with the Packer and Produce Market Guide, PMG for short, two trade publications in the fresh produce industry. Thanks so much for joining us. Today, the Packers editor, Tom Karst, and I talk with Paul Lightfoot, who founded his controlled environment agriculture business, or CEA business, called Bright Farms in Irvington, New York, and also spearheaded the CEA Food Safety Coalition to create food safety standards and labeling unique to this indoor ag sector. That labeling will help retailers and shoppers make purchase decisions and also protect consumers, as well as reduce confusion among CEA companies. But Lightfoot has been working on several other initiatives. We talk about his negative foods newsletter, It's actually a positive thing. Foods that can be produced in a way that they have a negative carbon footprint on the environment and humanity, not just minimizing your carbon footprint or having a neutral carbon footprint, but venturing into the negative. Let's hear more from Paul Lightfoot. Hi, this is Amy Souter, the retail and education editor for PMG and the Packer, and my colleague, Tom Kars, editor of the Packer, And we have our guest today is Paul Lightfoot, the CEO and president of Bright Farms, as well as the publisher of the Negative Foods newsletter. And the um, you're a board member of the United Fresh Produce Association and founder and chairman of the CEA Food Safety Coalition, as just a few of the things you do. So welcome. Thank you. I appreciate it. Good to see you, Paul. And uh, you were busy this week. You were out on PMA at Virtual Town Hall meeting too, weren't you? Yes. Talking about, talking about carbon. And uh, yes, that, that's one of the areas I wanted to ask about just your negative foods newsletter. It's, it's very striking when you hear negative foods, you know, what's that about? You know, what, what was that journey like for you to decide to start the newsletter and what's the experience been like so far? For you? Uh, so it's, no one's asked me that. So thank you. I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm 51 now, Tom. And I think at the end of my thirties, I wrote down for myself, like my, my purpose, which I know must sound funny, right? But, it, but I did. And, and Bright Farms in many ways was formed with that purpose in mind, which is to, which is to sort of do more with food that's better for human health, but also for the environment. Bright Farms, which is, you know, branded produce with, a, with sort of a, a disruptive supply chain that's more sustainable, was my first iteration on, on trying to really make something of that. And that's been a great experience. Uh, this, you know, and, and my understanding of climate change and the costs and the risk of climate change are, are different now. And, um, you know, over the last two years, I started thinking about being more narrowly focused on climate change as food relates to it. And, um, Amy, in your introduction, you introduced me as the president and CEO of Bright Farms. I'm the president, but I actually hired with our board a, a new CEO in 2019, a guy named Steve Platt, who, um, who I love. And, and, and Steve's done a great job. And, and we actually just sold Bright Farms, the remaining shares to our lead investor this past summer. It was acquired by Cox Enterprises. And those two big events gave me some space to start working on other things in addition to my role at Bright Farms. And, and Tom, that's what the Negative Food newsletter, newsletter springs from. It's from a, uh, a curiosity and an ambition and a hunger 
and some capacity in, in my schedule um, to work on this. The, the, the phrase negative foods is a funny one, which is you're, you're politely sort of pointing out, Tom. The, um, I wouldn't name a product negative foods because it has a little bit of a negative uh, sound to it. But the idea of the concept being called negative foods is fine because it does make people stop to think for a second, like, what does that mean, right? And I want people to stop and think, what does that mean? Because I think that one of the well, let's, higher level, right? The food system is, is responsible for, let's say, a third of global greenhouse gas emissions, right? But there's lots of things like that, transportation, energy. Those are, those are similar big emitting, emitting categories of our activities. But food is different than those other things. And it's different in that all of us have to always be eating, right? You die the moment you stop eating. But it's also unique in that some foods can have carbon negative footprints. You know, and with, with my electricity usage, maybe I'll get it to zero emissions with, with going all wind or solar or something like that. But I'll never get it to negative, right? Um, same thing with transportation. Maybe my car will be powered by entirely by renewable energy. Maybe my fleet will be entirely by renewable energy, but it won't draw carbon from the atmosphere. But if you grow beef or wheat in, uh, in, in a way that follows regenerative agricultural practices, it can actually be a lever that pulls carbon out of the atmosphere. Uh, and so if we, if we switch our, our, our lifestyles so that we're consuming more and, and switch you know, the food system, that's all. And, and, and we find ourselves eating more and more foods that I call negative foods that have carbon negative footprints, the food system can be a lever to reverse climate change. And, that, and that's really the, the, the gist and the point of all of this. Um, and, and the last part of your of your question, Tom, is, you know, how is it? It's been fantastic, right? This morning was the, the 25th straight weekly edition. It comes out at 745 in the morning on Friday mornings. And the, um, the feedback that I've gotten, the ideas that I'm getting, the energy that I'm feeling from the community has been outrageously, fabulously great. Like it's it's I can't remember ever having as much energy as I have now. I, I love it. You know, um, sometimes people get a little bit gloomy about climate change, right? Because it's most it's wildfires and catastrophes and the dinosaurs are going to die again kind of stuff, right? You know, my my whole shtick is to be like, action is my anecdote, right? Like I, I antidote, you know, this is, there's some terrible stuff going on in the world and I'm going to wake up early and work on it. And, and that makes me feel good, right? And, and I hope more people think like that. You've got quite a thinking man's... Uh man and woman little newsletter so i, I appreciate that uh, amy uh, i know you you had some questions on retail too that you were going to ask paul and maybe how that relates to the retail elements yeah that pretty much is my question uh for, <laughs> Sorry. for our, no for our retail audience the um how how do negative foods relate you know what can what kind of actions can they take or what kind of changes can they make or, you know, before that part, what problems or challenges do you see? I actually think that consumer demand is going to be a big part of what changes the food system, right? And I say that recognizing that when retailers think about their role in the food system, it's largely as the, the proxy for the consumer, the representative of the consumer. And good retailers generally won't try to do something that consumers won't like. And they do try to do something consumers will like, particularly in the future, right? Um, and so this is a great case of that. So let me talk about consumers and then I'll get back to the retailers. Consumers are already now increasingly choosing foods that have improved carbon footprints, right? They increasingly perceive correctly 
that negative foods are, are better for the planet because they reverse climate change, but also in many cases, they're better for health. There, there's a correlation between, um, you know, uh, the, the amount of carbon in the soil where food's being grown and, and the nutritional density of that food. And consumers are, are willing to pay more for such foods, and they're they're increasingly going to you know drive more market share to such foods. So I think that you're going to see over the next few years like a, a, a tidal wave of carbon negative foods, and that rise in market share will help draw down carbon from the atmosphere and reverse climate change. Now, what's the role for a retailer in all of this? It's it's to get the consumers what they want, and I think that you know one way to think about it is that companies like like Kroger or Walmart have very clearly stated objectives on this front. You know, Walmart says it wants to become a regenerative company. Kroger has got all sorts of its own goals about getting to net zero in, in its activities and operations. Um, and that's that's great. But there's a there's an even more visceral and important and faster thing to happen, I think, which is that they can use this movement as a competitive advantage. And I, I look at like the giant Martins division of All Hill Delhaize which is run by Nick Bertram, who I think is a real a visionary leader in the, in the retail space. They've got a partnership with the Redale Institute. They're, they've got an announced strategy of sourcing regenerative foods. And, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not out of altruism, right? This is good business practice. You know, I think that what, what Nick gets and what, what Giant will win with is recognizing that, especially the younger, you know, the more attractive demographic, the one that spends more money, that has bigger baskets, the more health-focused demographic, is going to be searching for these foods. And to the degree the giant can offer them faster than its competitors, they'll gain that competitive edge and, and use it to their to their benefit, similar to how Whole Foods did with, with organic you know, over the last 20 years. Um, so I think that retailers have a huge role to play. And the ones that are able to move the fastest and be the most progressive are probably the ones that are going are gonna to win market share. What foods are we talking about here? Wow. So it's it's super early days, right? And um, we don't have great standardization on labels and definitions yet, which is unfortunate. But there are certain areas where you're already seeing it, right? Um, you know, one of my favorite categories is beer. And, uh, you know, Patagonia Provisions, which is the division of Patagonia that does food, you know, just released a, a, a beer line that's based on regeneratively grown wheat products. So that's one example Probably the biggest example, though, that I give is beef. And the reason I talk about beef when I'm asked a question like that, Amy, is that beef is unusually important, right? And, and it starts with the fact that industrial beef, which is the lion's share of the beef that's consumed in America, is the worst climate actor in the food system. Um, beef is produced, you know, in, in sort of the modern industrial way, in a way that, uh, that uses synthetic fertilizer that's really made from natural gas, to grow grains like corn and soy to feed the cattle. And it's sometimes grown in places where they've, you know, clear cut or burned down, you know, like Amazon rainforest, right? Which had been thousands of years of carbon storage released all at once and then doesn't keep storing year after year. And then the grain fed cattle just release a lot of carbon equivalents in, in their methane emissions. So it's a, it's a catastrophe on a, um, on a climate basis to eat industrial beef. Um, but the answer doesn't have to be don't eat beef, right? And I, and I think that that is what people have been told, and I don't think it's a very successful message. It turns out that there's a way to grow beef regeneratively, right? And it's, and it's with feeding cattle uh, grass in a rotational 
method on, on pasture land and a certain amount of density. I mean, there's some mindfulness that's required there, but it's very similar to what indigenous people did in the, in the, the plains of the Midwest, you know, for thousands of years. When beef is grown regeneratively, not only is it not releasing a lot of carbon, it's actually drawing carbon from the atmosphere. So if you're enjoying beef from a, a brand like Belcampo in California or, or White Oaks, which I think is in Tennessee or, or Hickory Nut Gap in, in North Carolina, those are companies that are sourcing regenerative beef and you can have some confidence based on the, the LCAs that they've conducted and the analyses that they've shared that that beef is a, a lever to pull carbon from the atmosphere. So that's another great example that I like to point to, but you're starting to see every month, you're starting to see more and more products that have um, regenerative footprints and, and neutral or negative footprints. Um, and it's, it's still early days, but it's on the rise for sure. How do growers of produce, fresh specialty produce do this? Do this? Yeah. So definitely there is the case right now that the row crops and the animal production is further along in knowing how to get this done. But that is not, it doesn't mean it isn't being done. Like, like olive production, for example, is, is, is one, um, one type of produce that is already being uh, grown regeneratively in some places. It, it's, it basically comes down to a set of practices that don't always work in every context and aren't always appropriate in every context. So it's a very case by case um, sort of, you know, determination of what's the best thing to do. And, uh, you know, and when I think about my role in this, I'm not the agricultural expert. You know, the USDA has a, has a division, the, the NRCS, that teaches these practices. Um, and there's lots of, of, of brilliant scientists and, 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 and farming educators who can teach this. My role is sort of help foster the creation of the food brands that have regenerative footprints and watch that rising consumer demand create a, a, a reason for, for farms and food companies to shift their practices to meet that market demand. Um, so, you know, and if you guys have show notes, I could probably share some resources that talk about, you know, what products, you know, in addition to olives, you have perennials, you have, you know, there's, there's lots of different research being done out there right now. Um, probably better to, to link to some of that than for me to try to uh, talk about it too much myself directly. You know, Paul, you mentioned the carbon footprint and, and labeling. Uh, do we see more labeling of, of food? And, and that's, that is not easy because there's all different types of ways to do that. Uh, do you think consumers will demand more carbon labeling of foods in the future? Yeah. So I think, I actually think this is the biggest challenge we have right now is that consumers don't have a clear understanding. First of all, they don't have a clear understanding of this whole matter. Um, but they they almost never have an understanding of the carbon footprint of one product versus another. Um, that discussion we had about beef a moment ago is a very stark one. There's a very wide continuum and some kind of beef is on one end and some is on the other. And the labels right now are not lending itself to people gaining an understanding of where in that continuum a particular product is. You can go to websites, you can read reports, but that's a lot to ask of a consumer trying to decide what's for dinner on Tuesday, right? Um, so I do think there is a desperate need for clear and effective carbon labeling. There's a, there's a mess out there right now. There's dozens of different uh, efforts being, being you know, tried. Maybe the Rodale Institute's ROC is the one that's getting the most traction. It's not a metric. It's sort of a, a, a designation, like organic is a designation, which I think is great, but probably not enough. I'd, I'd like to see people choose between product A and product B based on which is 
emitting less or drawing more carbon from the atmosphere. And, um, and until we have that, I think the consumer demand, uh, the ability for consumer demand to change farming practices will be slowed, slowed down. Now, you're about to see a series of voluntary initiatives get underway. Unilever, for example, is about to start doing carbon labeling on thousands of their products. And there's companies in Europe that are already doing a lot of voluntary uh, carbon labeling. My hope, and, 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 and maybe I'd even say my prediction, is that when that happens, consumers will gravitate toward those products and it will be a competitive weapon to have a label that's effective, that shows a competitive advantage on carbon. And if, if, if Unilever starts winning in the marketplace with their carbon labeling on their climate-friendly products, you know, I think you're going to see other companies that have climate-friendly products following suit to, to gain market share. And when that happens, you're going to have sort of a, a virtuous cycle, a race to the top for good actors to put labels on their products. Uh, and the fact that you don't have a, a label, you know, will be a de facto sense that maybe you're not a good actor when it comes to climate. So that's what I'm hoping happens. I'm not optimistic that the government will step in and solve this anytime soon, but I am heartened and energized by by efforts like companies like Unilever. We've read from some of your your newsletters or um, other areas that that you've expressed disappointment in in something having to do with organics. Um, could you share? Well, that? yeah. So th- this is also a nuanced topic, um, and maybe <laughs> a little bit controversial. And I'll start by admitting that my family eats organic most of the time, right? Almost any time we have the chance to, we select organic. But the promise of organic, if we really go to the roots of the movement, was that it would reduce the use of of chemicals and synthetic fertilizers in American farmland, right? And that it would be better, it would be better for the environment. And unfortunately, that just hasn't happened, right? The, the actual percentage of American farmland that's organic is as close to zero as it is to anything. It's like 1% of our farmland. Most of our organic food is, is imported. Um, and the use of pesticides and synthetic fertilizer has gone up materially over the last 20 years, you know, since the organic movement really became mainstream. So it's so even though if I'm buying strawberries tomorrow, I'm likely to buy organic ones. The organic movement has not, has not made the planet uh, in, in, in a better place um, you know, than it was. It, it's gotten worse. So that's in that sense, I'm disappointed. And there are cases where food is grown organically, but it's not grown in a way that's good for the environment. And so I think organic is a great starting point, but it's not enough. And I think we have to be able to to measure, you know, the, the climate footprint of, of, of the food that we're buying as well. Yeah. As, as you, you know, reflect on 10 years plus of, of greenhouse, of indoor agriculture, uh, the rise of this area of agriculture, especially related to fresh produce. Uh, has it unfolded about as you expected? Are there surprises for you in terms of how how the growth of greenhouses <laughs> has happened? Uh, what, what do you yeah. seem to be doing pretty well, though, right, uh, overall? Yeah, it's funny because when you start uh, an innovative company, you, um, you have to start with audacious goals, right? Otherwise, it's very hard to get going and get people going and to motivate people to do the hard work. Cause it is a hell of a hard thing to do to start like a new, a new company in, in almost a new industry. Um, so I do recall in the beginning laying out sort of extraordinary forecasts and predictions for how much the industry would change. Um, so I can't say that I didn't call it cause I did call it. Uh, but I have to say that now that it's actually happened and <laughs> happening, it does seem remarkable. Right. And um, you know, 
my colleagues and I were responsible for some of it, perhaps. We also got lucky, perhaps in the timing. If we'd been five years earlier, it might have been too early. Five years later, it would have been too late. Um, but it, 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 it has been unbelievable. I wasn't expecting, Tom, so much uh, institutional capital to flow in the space like it has over the last three years. It has become a hotter space from the perspective of the capital markets than I had, than I had predicted, which is fantastic. Um, I'm happy to see so many companies in the space. And I'm thrilled that really every major retailer in the U.S. either has a local indoor salad program or is working on getting an indoor salad program. I think it's, I think it's great. And, and it, there will be a future date where all of these indoor farms are using 100% renewable energy because the whole world will go to 100% renewable energy. And when that happens, you know, you're going to see essentially you know, carbon neutral produce being grown on a local basis. And I think it'll be done in a way that frees up some of the, the farmland in places like California that can be used that can be used for for being more negative foods, right? It can be agroforestry or perennials or or pasture raised beef, and you could see California being more of a carbon sink. Right now, it's the opposite; it's a carbon emitter. Yeah, that's uh, it's impressive, and and even some of the traditional ag folks are buying into it a little bit. So uh, you've got to feel good about that, and. Uh... Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, the people who see the change in the weather are like the, the sailors, the pilots and the farmers. Right. These are people who are always looking at the weather and there's just no denying the droughts and the wildfires and the floods and the hurricanes. Right. Like, you know, you, you, and it doesn't even matter. People don't need to say, why was this caused? Was it you know, it, it just is like, you know, what are we going to do about it? And, and building a more resilient supply chain, it turns out it's a good idea. One that holds more carbon also holds more, more soil um, and just holds up better in the face of all of this, uh, you know, volatility and climate weather. What's happening with the uh, CEA Food Safety Coalition coming up with a set standards and, and labeling and things like that? Yeah. For indoor ag. Yeah. Thanks for asking. So it's um, that, that coalition has sort of risen with the rise of the industry. Right. And, and, uh, it's been a great time for the industry. You know, we're indoor leafy greens producers. We've had a ton of new members join the coalition over the last year, which has been, you know, which has been terrific. And we did just adopt a standard that gives us a certification. So the, um, the addendum of, of, for food safety audits that our members adhere to will enable them to put a, um, a certification label on their products um, saying that it is, it is certified by the coalition which we think will be an important um, competitive advantage to indoor leafy greens producers compared to the, to the field producers that, that will lack that certification. So there's our, already a label and are we seeing yes. it, is it out there? Uh, I don't, there, there was a, a process you had to go through. You had to get a third party certifier to adopt the certification standard and then actually go out and do the audits. I don't know how many labels are on storage shelves yet. My guess is that we're getting there shortly, but it's it's it'll take a while for it to trickle into the market. So consumers or retailers can start looking for for that label in the coming months or year. Or, um, yeah, it'll exactly. Start popping up on on the yeah, and the and it'll make a little bit more formal what I think has already been happening. You know, particularly with retailers thinking about it. But you know, there is a structural safety advantage to growing indoors and that there's, you know, there's no pathogens from animals, right? Which is often in, in, in these um, recalls we've had in California, Arizona the last few years, it's often 
you know, some sort of a, uh, of a confined animal feeding operation that has, you know, pathogens getting out in water and finding its way into the irrigation water for field grown salad. That doesn't happen in indoor production, right? You, you have uh, water that's tested, that, that's, that's coming in in a, in a certain way. Um, and, and you have buildings that have locked doors and, and hairnets and foot baths. It, it's just a more uh, sterile environment. So it's a structurally less risky way to operate, and that will be reflected uh, on, on these certifications on the labels. And you know, and I think it'll be good for consumers. Yeah, there must be set standards for all the different kinds of indoor ag, like soil grown and vertical and aeroponic and hydroponic and all that, right? What we did was we we found the the uh, the common ground among our members because we we do, as you point out, have members that grow differently hydroponically, aeroponically, vertically, greenhouses. Um, but from a food safety perspective, we were able to find a, uh, a standard and we created a working group of lots of different members that made sure that they uh, developed a standard and, and NSF worked with us on this uh, that would apply across different growing methods. And that's been a success. So we feel great about it. Very good, Paul. I have one more question for you. I know you're involved with United and of course with the Fruit and Vegetable Industry Advisory Committee. Uh, labor is such a big issue all around the industry. Is it also an issue for, you know, operations like Bright Farms and other greenhouses and operations? What kind of solutions do you see out there for this labor shortage that we've got in the, you know, in the industry right now? Yeah. So the first the first answer is yes. Every every employer that I've spoken to in the last year is struggling to find uh, the right labor or enough labor, right? Including Bright Farms and, and probably including every member of the Food Safety Coalition. So it's, a, it's an acute problem for all of us. The Fruit and Vegetable Industry Advisory Committee that advises Secretary Vilsack at the USDA doesn't really have uh, much of a role to play on this because it's a labor department issue, not a USDA issue. Um, I mean, yeah, so it, it's, 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 it's a problem that the committee brings to the table and thinks about and talks about, but I don't think it's one that the USDA feels like it can solve on its own. Um, now, if you wanted to ask me on a personal basis what I think the solutions are, you know, I think there's probably two things that have to change. One is we have to, we have to pay people more. Um, you know, it's just I have a minor in economics. Like it was, you know, when, when there's scarcity, prices go up and then, you know, capacity will find its way into the marketplace. That's got to be the case here. And in the case of the United States, you know, we've, we've been underpaying people for a long time. Um, we're one of the few developed countries where you can work full time and not pay your rent or have enough food for your family, right? So I actually welcome uh, a society where people are paid more. And I think it's probably a painful transition, but a necessary transition to a better place that we're working through this cycle where wages are rising. Um, and then, which by the way means prices will rise as well, right? Because it's your customers who pay for costs, not, not you know, not the uh, not the producers. And then the other thing that has to change is that this this is a country that has had a rich history of immigrants, and um, and rising immigration rates is is almost always a country's part of a country's solution to solving a labor shortage. It seems inevitable to me that we'll have to find a way to let more people in, and when we do, it'll it'll help solve the problem as well. And there you go. I gave you some politically controversial ideas. As well. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> well, thank you. We, we touched on all sorts of different topics because your hand is in lots of different things. Um, it's been very illuminating and interesting. Um, and I hope it helps our audience from all different sectors. So thank you. I appreciate it. Did you want to say anything? My pleasure. No, I'm, no again, thanks, Paul, for, for coming on with us today. Appreciate it. 
Hey, everyone. That wraps it up for us today. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you hear, please take a moment to hit that subscribe button, rate us, and type out a quick review on whatever platform you use to listen to Tip of the Iceberg podcast, whether it's Google Play, Audible, Apple, or others. It really helps us out. And enjoy our earlier episodes. In our last two, we talked to Lisette Garcia of Sweet Girl Farms on how her family operation evolved and how they handle challenges such as water shortages. And before that, we talked to Wendy Reinhardt Kapsack of Produce for Better Health Foundation about influencing produce consumption at retail, food service, and farms. And we'll have more of those great conversations from the industry each week. Thank you so much for your support. Have a wonderful rest of your day.